Hello, I am Cody Ellingham, and this is the Transformation of Value podcast. This show is brought to you by Swarbricks, the first law firm in New Zealand to accept Bitcoin for legal services. The Swarbricks team are Bitcoiners, and they are knowledgeable about the legal aspects of Bitcoin in New Zealand, as well as general legal advice. Swarbricks offers a 20% discount for services paid in Bitcoin. Find out more at swarbricks.co.nz bitcoin. Now, in today's episode, I talk with G Sovereignty. We go deep into questions about individual sovereignty and freedom, and the relationship with the legacy nation-state. How Bitcoin and Nostra may interface with collectivist societies such as China. We talk about the Hong Kong protests, the dynamics of state and media, and Bitcoin's eventual showdown with the Cantillon Pyramid. We also talk about G's work in Nostra, including running the Nostrovia podcast and building Nostra Rocket, helping Bitcoiners organize projects in a way that is not beholden to the state. I do hope you enjoy this episode. If you want to get in touch with me, please send an email to hello at the transformation of value.com and I will get back to you. Otherwise, on to the show. I, I thought room service was going to cut me off because um, oh, yeah. it's been a bit of a pain because I'm in this like hotel room and it's so small um and like every time they've tried to come and clean the room i've, I've been like doing something and i'm like oh sorry can yeah. you come back tomorrow and they're like oh, we have to clean it today um so but luckily they finished just before so it's all good are you are you in tokyo still no no i'm out west um in a place called kanazawa um okay really beautiful it's like one of the only cities that didn't get destroyed during world war Two. um huh. So there's a lot of like old houses and just like, it feels really different because even Kyoto, which has a little bit of kind yeah. of the old stuff, um, it's still quite modern and it's kind of been updated. Whereas Kanazawa, it's like, man, just like old houses and everything just feels a little bit slower. It's a really nice pace of life. Oh, interesting. Are the houses, yeah. what's the, const- the construction of them usually oh. over there? Um, well, they used to be, I mean, they were all wood. Um, yeah. I think now they use a lot more um, kind of concrete and synthetic. Oh, so they have been rebuilt. It's just that it's, it just it just didn't go through the destruction phase. Yeah, there's something really interesting around that sort of creative destruction of, of warfare and how it affects urban planning. Like, I don't know, I just, overall, it's, it's a, a far more beautiful city than Tokyo. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can sort of see the memories of Tokyo, like there's areas you can go to where you can sort of feel that it used to have that sort of vibe with these like narrow streets and mm-hmm. kind of that neighborhood sort of feel. But it, it just got churned over so many times. And then you had this kind of massive investment and just this growth mindset that meant that, you know, the old was always, you know, out with the old and with the new. And I've always found that dynamic very interesting, like how cities come to be. I mean, Hong Kong's probably a little bit like that as well, right? Yeah, and um, Hong Kong, but also, but but that sounds more like Beijing. Actually, Beijing is really um, they have all the old the old hutongs, which are like the original um, style of housing, um, which there aren't really many left. Um, but you can it's that it's that feeling again, that feeling that you get where it's like, oh, this is how it, this is how they used to be, like these little like very um communal sort of like yeah. family oriented um yeah. places have you spent a bit of time in beijing yeah yeah mm-hmm. a little bit not not too long um yeah. 
maybe a year in total. Um, How did you find it? Uh, well, I was living in Wuhan at the time. And, um, um, and so going to Beijing was kind of like uh, going back to the, the civilized world after being out in the in the frontier, I guess, <laughs> you know, in a way it sort of felt like that. Um, uh, just like being able to get a wider variety of food, um, and sort of really good public transport, um, uh, just like a modern city compared to Wuhan, which was now is great, but back then it was, it was not, <laughs> that was, it was like basically a giant village. Um, yeah. Yeah, so it was really like going back to civilization. Um, but if you go to Beijing from like Hong Kong, it's like going backwards, I guess. Um, yeah, my um, my cousin was in Wuhan. She did a, an exchange for one year. I think it was like Wuhan Dashui, like Wuhan University. Yeah, and, uh, Buda. Yeah, yeah, that's Buda. Uh, yeah. And um, it's it's quite interesting because it's it's along the river, right? So um, it's sort of in the middle of the country, I guess, um, and. I mean, Beijing to a degree as well is it's there's no oceans nearby. It's kind of in the in the yeah. middle of of the continent as such. And I think what I've really felt coming back to or coming to Kanazawa, which is on the ocean. You know, I, I walked to the beach the other day. It was actually a, it was a ten kilometer walk, but it, it felt so um, so nice just to to go and wander along the river towards the estuary. But I realize the problem of Tokyo, even though it's got Tokyo Bay and there's there is some kind of ocean nearby, it, it's like I'm I'm too far from the water. I don't know. There's something. Maybe it's the New Zealander yeah. in me coming out, but I don't feel at peace unless I'm able to get to the ocean that you know really easily like that. There's something. Do Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I know what you mean. It's it's. I think it's. I have this. I have a similar. I have a similar thing. When I've been living around the water and then and I'm suddenly away from it, it's like there is no there there isn't really a, a way. Um, I don't know. It's, it's almost like there's no way to escape. Yeah. Um, there's no there's no vastness anymore. It's just all boxed in. Even if even if there is, even if it is open land, it's still like. But but like, how do we get out of here? <laughs> yeah. Do you do you speak Chinese? Yeah, um, Mandarin, um, Mandarin and oh, a bit wow. of Cantonese. But oh man, um, yeah, Cantonese. I don't really care about that much because it's not that. I mean, it, it's not that useful. It's, it's outside of Hong Kong, like where you're not going to use it anywhere. Um, oh, I mean, southern China, you know. Guangzhou, I mean, yeah, yeah. but yeah, it's practically practically speaking, everyone speaks Pukong, Pukong, yeah. right? Yeah, I am. Um, yeah. I don't know. It's kind of like it's Cantonese. Is, it is a, a not a particularly useful language, but there's something about it. You know, the old Hong Kong cinema, um, you know, the old days that it's kind of quite alluring. It's a bit like learning Latin or something. It's not particularly useful. I mean, it's more yeah. useful than Latin, but it's certainly um, there's an aesthetic to Canto that um, Mandarin doesn't quite have. Um, there is, but it's it's like it's sort of like it's it's really interesting to see like. If you if you learn Mandarin and then you start seeing you start hearing Cantonese, then it's like oh that's how they say that one. It's like because it is the same language, it's just like a different pronunciation really, um, for the most part, right? And then, um, um, or slightly sometimes it's slightly different ways to say things, but it's like but it's still like um, 
very evidently Chinese. Um, it's still very evidently the same language. And yeah. then it's just interesting to see like how you go to like Vietnam and sometimes th and Thailand and even stuff uh, and stuff like that. It's like all around Asia and you can see the Chinese influence on the language. Like some of the words are like, it's so similar. Like the numbers are a big one usually like, like everywhere's got, everywhere's got the same numbers. <laughs> like, yeah. And the same way, like it's just, it's not exactly the same, but it's like, you can see, it's just like when you see, when you hear like, um, Latin, like languages that come from Latin, where it's like they're they're all sort of have the same type of numbers. I, I um I found that uh, in Thai, right? Um, one two three four, Nong Song San Sit, which sounds yeah. it's like sounds like Cantonese. Um, yeah, and and there's other words, you know, like um, I don't I don't know if it's connected, but like in Mandarin, you'd say like Mei Wen Ti, like no problem, and then in um in Thai, you'd say like Mai Ben Lai, and yeah. it's like no worries, you know. I, I don't and know, you, just yeah. You also you hear, and then when you hear like other Chinese dialects, and then you go to that, it's like, oh, this is just a Chinese dialect. <laughs> like, yeah, there's more to it, but it's mostly just a Chinese dialect. <laughs> Do you think there's parallels we can draw with your experience in Beijing, your time in Hong Kong? Um, you know, having visited Tokyo, we met at Nostra Asia. Do you think there's a an awareness or an understanding of these kind of cities and the way fiat? thinking you know to kind of encapsulate you know what i hope we can talk about today with nostra and bitcoin but this idea of sort of the the fiat high and the the kind of the 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 pumping of kind of capital into these places that has made them into these uh, i wouldn't say soulless but it certainly has changed the the structure and the architecture of the city in a way that maybe other places haven't quite experienced that do, do you sort of feel there's some kind of relationship there in terms of the way money and cities interact like yes but it's not obvious it comes out in like different in like little ways like in terms of you can see the time preference coming out and manifesting in the way things are built and and the way things are done uh for sure and then and i think that also affects the way people react like interrelate with each other and the way they do business with each other because it's like wow you can't think too far ahead because there's no point yeah. um and then i think i think um if you i think but i think a really interesting thing uh, like an interesting comparison would be um to somewhere like argentina where it's like really really hammered them and to see a, like that that I, i've never been there i don't really know anything about it um, but I just heard from people who are Argentinian or people who have been there, like the way that it just destroys everything. Um, yeah. Well, um, so like along those lines, though, I mean, you've got similar to Argentina, we've got this kind of history, this um, kind of the golden era of yeah. arch architecture and kind of nation building. Same with China um, and Japan to a degree. You've got these kind of artifacts from the past that are inherited. But then they're sort of squandered in a way. And the 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 Hutong example in Beijing, you know, these old communal kind of family houses that are, you know very beautiful and 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 uh, and, and quite um, iconic. I think really around the time of the two two thousand eight Olympics, they started knocking them down and putting up these like yeah. faceless modern buildings. Um, yeah. 
uh, and half the time those buildings have a lifespan of about 10 years before they start falling apart themselves. Mm. Um, and, and there is this interplay where that sort of um, stuff gets lost along the way. And, and same with Tokyo, you know, it just feels like the, the furthest we can go back is about 1970 before things start getting blurry. Um, and so to go back to like the Edo period or, you know, some, some ancient history, it just isn't even possible. And then it's this refreshing thing to see like a castle or something from, you know, the 17th century, um, which I I can see from my window, you know, and I'm like, man, that's, it's like a different kind of time preference that. I think because for, for, for Japan, yeah, but for China, it all got like so obliterated during the cultural revolution that it almost doesn't matter anyway. Um, I think, I mean, it's, there's still, there's a, deepening respect now for for ancient basically like ancient stuff um but i mean they they blew it all away during the cultural revolution and um and not all of it but you know like they really did a lot of damage there and and i think the fiat the fiat stuff is kind of almost neither here nor there in comparison um especially with china because it's like it's not part of the U.S. fiat system. It's it's subtle, subtly different. the The goals are different. It's a the U.S. fiat system is uh pure like it's all all business, right? Like it's it, it's extractive, um, and that's what it's for. The Chinese fiat system is more. It's anchored in in a in a Confucian philosophy, um. And so it's more like it exists in order to deliver the goods, like in order to deliver the result for essentially like the massive Chinese family, which is which is like Chinese culture as a whole. Um, so, and it does obviously like it's still fiat and it still does damage, um, but the goals are very, very different. And the place that it comes from is very different. Yeah. Um, and they've done this experiment so many times already that they kind of know already. Like they've had, they had fiat under, because they were using silver, and then they went to fiat. Like um, I think it was one of the, I forgot which emperor, but like one of the Mongolian emperors. Um, I think it may, I, I can't remember. But anyway, um, he switched from, well, everyone was using silver except the emperor was like, except I don't need to use silver. I have paper and you will take it or we will kill you. (laughs) So like, that was like, that was like the, that was like a very clear way to explain like, yes, it's fiat. Yes, it's worthless, but yes, you will take it and you will equate it with silver. (laughs) So like, so they've had this explicitly before and like, they know this is all sort of ingrained in the culture. Like, they kind of know like um so it can't really get that too too far out of hand yes um, it's, it's like the bounds have already been set because as yeah. you say i mean paper money came from china it was like 900 ad i, I believe something like that yeah yeah like, yeah um and so the bounds of this kind of thinking and 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 that have already been set and so uh even if you look at the uh, housing market and the way you have these 99 year leases on 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 housing and property because it all ultimately belongs to the state 
um, there's no real way to plan uh, intergenerational wealth. You know, it's going to return back, and the buildings won't last that long anyway. So if you're investing in a apartment building, which is just a block of sky that's enca- encapsulated by some, you know, shoddily put together concrete, it won't last. And so yeah. we are seeing these things emerge. And you know, I, I have a, a lot, a lot of connections like yourself with China and with Chinese friends and things. And so I'm sort of hearing from different people just how this. Um, black box of China is starting to sort of morph and change and it's sort of hard to really know what's going on because we often lament that there's no transparency with the Fed and the US um, world order around the financial system but at the very least you know there's um, there are questions and people looking at this quite closely whereas I I think for the most part it's like what's going on in China you know there's a (laughs) there's a huge question mark and nobody knows Um, and that's just I don't know. That's part of the power hegemon, perhaps that you can leave people in this kind of state of unknowing. Perhaps the state of I, I think they, I think a native Chinese speaker who's interested in economics. I think they know, and they they can see exactly what's going on. Um, but the average people are just like, "Wow, it's taken care of. Like the system kind of works. It's it's working. So we just keep doing the thing that we're doing." um quality of life keeps improving there's there's they seem to be like very they're like chinese actually i found them in general to be a lot more politically aware than than westerners um they just don't talk about it all the time that's right they know but they know and they're just like wow cool but i mean we've been doing this for five thousand years like yeah this is just another one of those this is just like that time or this is like that time and it's better it's better than all the other times so it's an improvement. There's, there is a naivety, I think, to New Zealand in particular. Um, and I think we really saw that over the last few years. But, yeah. um, <laughs> you know, uh, there's a, an implicit tactical arrangement that I think Chinese people have. They understand, especially if they've got family still there, that there's a line to be towed um, and there's a, a way of being, a way of seeking consensus within uh, a system that they cannot hope to change themselves. That means that yeah, they're, they're a lot more careful about what they say, um, and there is a history of that. Um, you know, just that I guess logic of violence being applied against uh, against people in a way which the the West more generally and New Zealand in in in, in particular has no experience with. You know, we've yeah. inherited a tradition of uh, conversation and discourse and uh, political thought, which in a way could be seen as a model for uh, a certain uh, Western tradition. Uh, but it's also an anomaly of history. You know, you've got, as you say, 5,000 years of just um, the strong man uh, coming out of, of China. Well, it's, and, it's also yeah. a competing, competing strong man, right? And, and it's really just an extension of the family unit to the entire country or to the entire state. Um, it's like, like the government is responsible for the outcome whereas in in the west it's like the government's not really responsible for the outcome because you voted for them so it's actually your fault um if things don't go the way you want and then mm. i'll just say one thing is all well, that so like uh, chinese who you know go to new zealand so that's a there's a selection bias yes. so you only hear that side and there's like you know 1.4 billion of them and the vast majority of them are are pretty happy with the way things are um and the way things are going 
Like I'd say the average Chinese person is far happier with their country than the average, um, I wouldn't say New Zealander, but the average American is with America, mm. um, for example, right? Like I'd say only maybe like 30% of Americans are happy with the way the country's going, mm. whereas 80% of Chinese are happy with the way the country's going. Mm. So it's like, well, who's, oh, when it comes down to, to that level, like just being pragmatic, it's hard to say what should be done or how things should work. Cause it's like everyone, every culture has their own way of doing things and, and their own history. Um, what, what did you say just before this though? Cause I just, what I, did I say? yeah, I was trying, I, I, I went off on a, on a tangent, but I thought no, something we're, else. We're, we're all, we're, we're all on tangents here. I mean, I'll just, <laughs> yeah. I'll just add one other thing though. So just quickly coming back to, cause I think this will, we will loop this into what you actually do and who you are actually are in a moment. But, yeah. um, I think this is a really good prelude because, we were talking about how sort of this Sino-centric, um, you know, Chinese, um, ancient Chinese culture and language has sort of flowed on into different parts of Asia. And, and certainly, you know, the writing systems and the language of, of all of Asia has had at least some contact and influence from China uh, yeah. historically. But um, I was interested, there's been some issues here in Japan uh, lately with the Unification Church, which is a South Korean um religious organization which effectively is a cult um, and there was some connections with the assassination of uh, former uh, prime minister Abe okay. um, and there's kind of uh, uh, arguments that perhaps the the, the Japanese government um, or that there's you know sort of uh, ideas related to how uh, a lot of the, the members of Japanese government are involved with the unification church of South Korea and, and mm. its branches in Japan and there's uh, interesting sort of reading about it, how there's this idea of like the eternal father and the eternal mother and this kind of perfect family unit. And they have these mass weddings and there's all of these um, really strange things coming from, say, a New Zealand perspective where you look at anything, man, what is going on here? But it, it kind of connects back to that idea of like the strong man and this kind of Daja Hao, you know, Daja, like big family of China, yeah. which is a cultural uh, it's a cultural thing. Like I don't know how else to describe it, but it's their mode of self-organization. And I think I would be curious at what your thoughts are around what that means, say, for Bitcoin, for Nostra, for some of the ideas that you and I are both passionate about, because it's yeah. sort of, I would I hate to think that it's sort of coming in almost along the idea, the idea of an economic colonial kind of thing where, even though there is this clearly superior system and, and we've got a logic, a reasoning for why Bitcoin is correct, you know, and it is absolute. Um, the way that, 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 how does that interface with a culture that doesn't work like that? Like what, what are the overlaps? What, where can they meet in the middle? I don't know. Do you have any sort of thoughts around that? Yeah. Um, so I think because what, what we want, I mean, what, what I want and, and, and I'm pretty sure what you want is individual sovereignty uh, and like control. Just, I mean, essentially that, right? Freedom. Um, yeah. And and what that means is like just the ability to make your own choices really and, and use like, why would I need to use your currency? Like, why why do I need someone to tell me what currency to use or, or anything really? Like, I'll make my own decisions. Um, and that's why we like Bitcoin, or at least that's one of the reasons why we like Bitcoin. Um, but the, there's also group sovereignty. Like 
there's like family sovereignty and there's there's community sovereignty and there's there's, there's national sovereignty um and we don't like i don't care about national sovereignty like that's not i don't have a there's no country where i think i'm part of that country or i'm part of that group um that doesn't work with me at all but for other people they do have that they do have the group sovereignty thing like they want to be part of the group and and the group somehow however it is the group makes decisions um um and that group as a group they want sovereignty um and they want to be able to interact with other groups and also other and and well just anyone who's not in that group they want to be able to interact as a sovereign group um so they so like china is now in this situation where they're trying to assert their group sovereignty in the world um and being told no you can't do that because you're violating individual sovereignty but it's like they don't want they want the group sovereignty that's what they want um and the ones who don't want it they they tend to leave Mm. um so like i think that's there's something to be said for that and and bitcoin is just as valuable to them to assert their group sovereignty as it is to us to assert our individual sovereignty and that's something which I think Bitcoin is uh, missing um, when they think about countries like China. Not everyone wants individual sovereignty. That a, a lot of people really want the group sovereignty. Yeah, well, I think that's sort of where I'm really interested in some of these cross-cultural discussions because obviously a lot of the narrative is driven from the United States, which has a a history of this, you know, strong independence from. The federal government, this um, idea of um, uh, independence of of the individual, and uh, a place like New Zealand, uh, I think, sits slightly further away from that, where we are a small country, we are a large community in a way, and you know, I only notice it as I leave New Zealand that I think, man, I really, generally speaking, I I do like New Zealand people. They uh, they have their failings, but it's a little bit like the Shire, you know, we're all sort of in this yeah. thing and if i meet someone at the airport and i hear that twang in their voice and i think oh you know i'll probably go and have a chat with that person you know um, yeah. no matter where i am in the world and that's yeah. not that that's not the case you know you meet an american um and you say and you say oh where are you from california you say hey I, I know a guy from california as well it really doesn't mean anything to them whereas if you yeah. say hey i know a guy from uh, from wellington it's like, oh sh- shit let, you know i probably have bumped yeah. into him before you know yeah. um and so there's a different approach to consensus seeking, I think, for small states and these kind of different, you know, countries that are on and groups of people who are along along this continuum. And at one end of that, you've got uh, effectively these collectivist societies, um, which have been so for thousands of years. And Japan is also one. You know, yeah. you call they call it the kizoku ishiki. You know, the the group awareness. And it sort of inverts, and there's there's an interesting analogy. If you look at the address systems in Japan, it's sort of the other way around. They start, they go country, prefecture, city, yep. and then they got the numbers for the houses, which is different. Where in New Zealand, it's like number one, street name, and then you know yeah. the town. And it kind of, in a way, is an an, an analogy for the way society is organised. Because I think, to a degree, and I I think there's nuance here, but to a degree, I think first and foremost, people identify you know, as Japanese or as Chinese, and then they they drill down into the detail. Yeah. Um, and that creates some interesting political, cultural things where 
the the way you talk about say Chinese food, Chinese culture, Chinese society, you're talk you are talking about the individual, whereas I, I can be pretty openly critical of, of New Zealand and the state. Um, however, I, deep down I, there is a love, I believe, for my fellow countrymen. Um, you know, there is a, a sort of a fraternity there, even though we may completely um, despise the the representation of New Zealand or even something you know like the rugby or some kind of sports kind of. Yeah, they are supposed to be this kind of uh, what would you call it? This sort of analog for the country itself. You know, I, I hate all that stuff, but still, there's something about the people that is that brings us together. Whereas to say that you hate the Communist Party of China or that you dislike their policies or you don't agree with them is to implicitly insult the individual in a lot of cases. Yes, not not yes. for everyone, but... Okay, but for the vast majority, it is. If you say that to someone, like you might think that you're on the Chinese people's side by saying it. I mean, a lot of people in the West think that implicitly somehow. But it's like, no, you just actually... You just alienated the entire... Like, essentially, basically the entire Chinese population. Um, at least... And, and but I, I think but I think that happens mostly because of that selection bias, where it is the people who really don't like that system who leave, and they say everything's really bad because it's a, it's a um you know that's and to them it probably is really bad, right? Um, well, there, there's I've seen some interesting um, videos that Vice put out around North Korean defectors, and in a couple of cases though the people were like, yeah. I actually had a better life in North Korea, especially if they were higher up in the, the echelons of the military or, or, or of a certain family. You know, they that this one guy, he, you know, he swam over, you know, because you can, it's pretty close. Um, yeah. He swam over and he ended up in South Korea. He had no work skills. Uh, you know, they, they have an accent, so they don't really fit in that well. They don't even know how to ride the bus or any of that stuff. And they go through this like re education program because it's like if you've never been part of a modern, society and you just drop you land what, what are you going yeah. to do you know yeah. um similar to the, the fall of the berlin wall i guess um there are a lot of people on the on the communist side that were like oh actually i kind of just want to go back to the way it was before <laughs> well they're, they're economically um useless effectively yeah. like they, they may speak a language they maybe can do menial tasks but the cultural um patterns and kind of maps of meaning that they are kind of the, yeah the patterns that they exist mm. within are no longer applicable and mm. in a way i wonder whether there's there's parallels here again with the china kind of uh, i guess the, the the china way or the other way um around how we approach things like relationship building um kind of long-term thinking infrastructure investment i mean there's definitely different ways of doing things um and there is moments where they seem like they're compatible um, and then there's moments where you think, man, there's there's no compatibility here. It's like a different, it's a yeah. different gauge of railway. They're just not going to connect, you know. I think like at the moment, it's basically like China actually is is um they they just want to be internationally. They want to be capitalist. They just want capitalism to rule internationally. Um, which which they're now being told sorry we're internationally we're we're a dictatorship and led by led by the us and you're not allowed to do that you're not allowed to do this um you can't just you can't just trade with these people yeah we're not allowed to do that anymore um so internationally that they, they want just free trade um because that's what that's 
that's kind of like their their ammo really um but they want to control everything within their borders they want they want sovereignty over that um yeah. and so i think really like the interface at a broad level is it is going to be is going to be like interfacing with china as one big family and yeah you can try and like um do something on the individual level and that'll work uh, as edge cases but ultimately like they're gonna they're gonna stay together as a cohesive unit and that's what they've always done it's interesting you mentioned that i mean reflecting on what jack and jack dorsey and edward snowden were talking about at nostra asia you know certainly there's a i think a I mean, I hate the word West because you know we're, we're, I'm from the South. Uh, there's a but... global, there's a global, there's a global North and a global South. Yeah, you can look at it that way. I think the West is probably an outdated. It's a, it's a, it's a US. It's all fragmenting as well now, right? So like, I don't, but I guess there's well, whatever that thing is um, yeah. that, that you and I are part of. Um, that uh, how, how do you say? I, I think there's there's a there's a nugget of truth there with what you're saying around the engagement with the state and and certainly uh, Japan is is a, is a kind of a middle example where I mean there's more Bitcoin merchants in New Zealand in fact there's more Bitcoin merchants in Christchurch than there are in the entirety of Japan and I think that gives an example of what sort of difference we're seeing here and if you look at the meetups i mean there's certainly a lot of um, bitcoin meetups and events happening in somewhere like tokyo but the vast majority of them uh, the attendees are foreigners um i think there is an awareness around some of the technology uh, layer two stuff there's some people who are really interested in kind of building games or stuff on lightning but some of the deep political questions um i i don't see it um and, and given the, the 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 what's going on with the Bank of Japan and just some of these you know economic issues which are happening right now, there's sort of this um, lack of critical discourse as far as I can tell, which you saw I think perhaps more of um, in in the 1920s and the 30s, sort of in the pre-war era, uh, there were kind of criticisms and there was these this quite this period of unrest. You know, there was a period of assassinations and, and things like that in the 20s and 30s, which. Maybe there's an echo of that with what happened with Abe uh, Shinzo, but I wonder if this idea that there's you know a collectivist and individual societies and the way they come to something like Bitcoin is in, in very different ways. And to try and expect the average citizen or the average individual to go and get them their seed phrase and to go and get a wallet and go become self-sovereign is to really expect something that isn't possible culturally. Um, even if it's in their best interests to do so, perhaps. It, it may not even be in their best interests. I mean, we think it is. But the, the thing is that group, groups have their own power. Like groups have their own collective. Um, it, it makes sense sometimes to just, just be part of a group, depending on who you are, right? And and it may actually be in some people's best interests to, to essentially use... Um, custodial but let's say let's say like china adopts bitcoin for international trade which is highly likely um when they're i, I could talk more about that later but like let's say if they adopt that for international trade they're not going to they're still not going to allow it domestically at least not initially they're not going to allow it domestically because they want control over the economy because if anything goes wrong the government's responsible they're not going to allow this experiment to happen domestically um unless they see that it really, really works everywhere else. Um, so 
so so that would that would mean that essentially um but the, the chinese government then would be like the central bank would be accumulating bitcoin um and that's sort of the groups that's the 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 groups sort of bitcoin wallet and the individuals have sort of indirect access to that it's almost like custodial bitcoin um but they use it but it's just used for foreign trade and so whenever whenever they're buying something from a foreign country um it's going through bitcoin but this is going via the central bank i i can i can absolutely see that um and if you look at the history of gold and the centralization of gold um and and 6102 and and all of these things I could certainly see that taking place. And given the information controls, and this is where we touch on Nostra a little bit, but you know, there, there could be a, a paper currency within the, the, the country that is, um, it doesn't even need to be pegged. It can kind of just be its own thing that is propped up by basically the police coming and knocking on your door. You know, that, that's what it's backed by um, and, and border controls and capital controls. And then there's this, um, this wallet um, that's being settled in Beijing uh, that's used for those flows of international capital, and given the production base of China, um, I, I think there's uh, an argument to be made that perhaps they could actually crack it, and they somehow manage to centrally plan. I, I don't know. I mean, a lot of Austrians would, you know, would be, you know, yelling at yelling at that and saying, "Well, that's just not yeah. possible." But looking at what's happening with AI, um, looking at what they've done so far, they've kind of made it work for. 50, yeah. 50 years, you know, yeah, um, or from, you know, 1949. So yeah, 60, 70 years now. Um, so I, I don't know, man. I, I think like central planning does not work in, in a, in a Western context because we are real way less um, able to submit to something like that. But when your culture is, had 5,000 years of submitting to central planning. Like, it probably does work. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can see it also from a tech perspective. You know, they've got these tech giants, um, you know, we WeChat, Tencent, yeah. Huawei, you know, these different um, companies, certainly with competency, um, and in fact, the mining companies as well, manufacturers, you know, they've got perhaps the, the technical skills to also execute this... Um, international trade system where because um, it is a bit messy at the moment i mean when i've had to buy stuff from china um the easiest way is to go via hong kong you know trying yeah. to I, i'm quite i can't quite remember how it works but trying to send rmb i mean there, there's it's, it's not really that straightforward yeah. um whereas you know you go through the hong kong dollar and i mean that was always the role of hong kong and that's that's where you're based obviously but it was always that kind of portal that kind of peg into the world and I wonder whether that's an analogy that we could look at with Bitcoin, where Hong Kong becomes, you know, reemerges as the kind of financial hub 2.0. It looked like for a while that was going to disappear as as the China become, you know, increases its um, sway in Hong Kong and and, and tried to crush the, um, the protests and that several years ago. But now we see maybe it could emerge again as it's the Bitcoin hub. This is where Bitcoin stuff happens. The no Bitcoin yeah. in China. Thank you very much. Um, and, and there's sort of maybe some connection there, perhaps. There's well, that is what what is happening. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, so Hong Kong is being used as as a sandbox by China. Yeah. Um, that's always sort of been that way since the handover. Like it's it's viewed as 
because China always experiments with small areas like that. They opened up Shenzhen as an experiment um, before they before they rolled it out nationally, right? And they're doing the same thing with Hong Kong. They're, they were, Hong Kong was about to, see, Hong Kong is very US centric um, because the Hong Kong dollar is pegged to the USD um, and the banking system is like deeply connected. Um, so Hong Kong was about to basically just outlaw all Bitcoin and crypto trading, um, unless you have, unless you're a, a so-called uh, qualified investor, which means like, um, you're already like very rich. Mm-hmm. Um, they were about to do that, but that the laws were written. It was all like they were, they were doing it. They were going to ban everyone from buying Bitcoin, but they're going to, and then like overnight they changed because Beijing that was so Hong Kong was they're autonomous right they make their own laws they were doing this because the US wanted them to do it because it's because they they can't comply with the AML and the CTF stuff and whatever so they were like okay we just ban it all um China stepped in and was like no you're not banning it you're actually you you have to make this legal because we need Hong Kong to experiment here and see like we can't experiment with it. We didn't have like China doesn't have the capacity to do these kind of experiments um, politically like they can't do it, but Hong Kong can. So like, like Beijing just like told them not to um, like they just told them to legalize it um, mm-hmm. and that's working its way through now. Yeah. So, so I think like things like that, there's also there's so much misconception about Hong Kong at the moment. Like I talk to people and they're like, I don't want to go to Hong Kong because I might get arrested or something. It's like, what the fuck are you think? What what are you talking about? Like that's not that's not happening at all. It's like it's um uh there's the the media has done like a, a really good hatchet job on Hong Kong. Um uh, basically because they um essentially like there were there were legitimate there was a there was the the protests and I was out in the protests. I wasn't protesting. I was going to watch the protests with some friends because it's like happening where I live and it's sort of like history in the making. Um, we went out when you know all the shops, the Seven Eleven and stuff was still open. Um, there's like rubber bullets flying around and stuff, but we could still get a beer at Seven Eleven and drink on the street and just watch it all. And so that's what we did for like months on end as this as this sort of unfolded before us and. Um, it started as like very peaceful and then it, it and then it took a turn towards violence um when i think there was like one of the u.s senators or someone who came and um to hong kong basically the u.s started started trying to to turn this into a color revolution um uh by basically like it, it's all it's it's sort of psychological at, at that point but um as soon as that happened, it turned like very, very violent very quickly. And it it took like six months of like serious violence, like Molotov cocktails being thrown around. Like I saw like there was a restaurant. Um there, there was a restaurant like full of people. And then and then the kids like threw Molotov cocktails um into the floor below the restaurant and the whole thing caught on fire. And it's like, what it like you trying to kill people or or what? Like why are you trying to kill people who are eating dinner after work in a restaurant? Mm-hmm. Like that's sort of, and so the people 
the, the Hong Kong people like turned against the protests, but they tolerated it for like six months because they're like, okay, get it. Like, um, it took six months for the police to really do anything about it, and that's when, and then, and then, and then that they they shut it down um, over a period of about a month, and um, and then the Western media lost it because they couldn't handle um that they couldn't handle it that that it would that it, that it was ending or something like that like it was it was all very strange um yeah yeah it, it seems like a lot of a lot of different things were being poured into that you know i mean i was watching yeah. from a distance but i mean i've got a lot of friends in hong kong and you know i've i've i've, I've been very interested in that story um but it perhaps in a way it, it sort of echoes a pre preempts the COVID era media control. And and I think we're a lot more aware now of sort of what that actually meant. But, you know, what what is actually happening unless you were there and you really understood the the machinations of it, it's really impossible to tell because it's like it is a black box and there's all of these inputs and all of these outputs and it's all just mixed and joined together. And so what, that you know there, there was no grand narrative and i think maybe we, we we try and look for that and we think well what was the big idea you know what was the popular spirit the zeitgeist that went into it yeah but the reality is you know it was a, a shit show and there were these characters that emerged and i certainly um you know was enamored with people like agnes chow and these others who sort of seemed to stand up and have this um Jean d'Arc kind of yeah. uh, aura to them, but certainly um, there were others who were just in it for themselves, who saw an opportunity to make something happen. Um, no doubt the American um, interests were there, the the, the Chinese interests. Um, and and what does this mean? Because it was all being live streamed on like you know hundreds of channels. You know you had these um, new ways of organizing and with um, like yeah. Telegram groups and. Um, you know, their, their ability to like coordinate, I was really blown away how they could just say, okay, the police are here, you know, and dynamically they would just disperse and like route around the, the blockades and that sort of thing. Yeah, that was really interesting. That was really interesting. Um, um, so there was like, there was, but it was also just like, it was almost just like a daily sport. You go out and you go to the protests. Like it was, it was just sort of like, it didn't require much laughing. Yeah, I I shared it. I I really enjoyed the protest period. It was really fun. Like it was really, uh, uh like it. There were there were bad, definitely bad aspects to it. Like I really, they absolutely trashed the city. Like they did a really they they burned, they like destroyed MTR stations. They like it's like, which was like the thing that really pissed people off because it's like okay yeah I get it like there are things um there are things to protest about um but don't burn down the city because we need it still right yeah. like we still need to do we still need to get on with with the job and yeah. like if you if you're burning down the city then whose side are you actually on here like um and the restraint of the police was insane like i'd never uh, it was the most professional police force like i've ever seen this was not like as you see that in australia it, it took like six months in Hong Kong for the police to do anything. In Australia, it took like two days of protests during COVID for them to re- react with like the same kind of violence. Um, so when I saw that, I was like, that was the final sort of nail in the coffin for the whole, like Hong Kong is not free and the West is free. It's like, no, it's self-evidently wrong. Um, 
That's interesting. There's a, a really good um, film inside the red brick wall, which um, is sort of, you know, handheld documentary footage from uh, the Hong Kong Polytechnic and that kind of last stand. And again, it has this kind of Alamo kind of feel to it. You know, this was the last yeah. place. And yeah. you look at these kids and they're like, you know, got the Gucci bags and, and the Nike sneakers yeah. and the Jordans, yeah. you know, and it's, but there's like an ace there's an aesthetic to it and it, it, it's sort of i mean it was cool it was like cyberpunk you know and they got the gas masks and the umbrellas but at the same time looking at this through a bitcoin lens um you know what does it mean can we is it even knowable to to know really what was going on and what the machinations are like i think where i've gotten to with my understanding of 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 these kind of media phenomena is that you can only look at what happened. You can't really understand why it happened. And so you're always kind of following, you know, you're not able to set, uh, you're not able to anticipate or set a direction. You can only sort of look at the things as they kind of come to you and then react to them. So you're always sort of one step away from uh, being able to do something about it, I think. And in a way, the you know, the, the hypothesis perhaps for Bitcoin is that it kind of exists in its own place and it, and it has a force of its own and, and kind mm. of a a gravity of its own that you can start working on and working towards. And that's sort of that some of these themes around parallel societies, um, parallel networks, sort of separa- separation. That's kind of a, I don't know, for lack of a better word, it's, it's a separatist movement from yeah. just the global shit show. Um, and, and so in a way, it feels a lot more like you're, you can be in control because you know fundamentally what the principal values of the system are you know they're not political values they're mathematical they're they're more knowable you can run your own node and you can see truth you can you you know and also that the people who are attracted to it are like-minded in the same way uh it's really like so i'm originally from australia of course and then but i i'm don't view myself as australian if if someone invaded i wouldn't i honestly wouldn't care i wouldn't do anything about it because they don't care about me, I don't care about them. Like that—that that was a harsh lesson we learned during COVID. Um, Australia is not a nation; it's a something else. But it's something that I don't want to be part of. And but Bitcoin, I want to be part of. If someone tried to, to do something, um, like I'll die to protect Bitcoin. Um, much like that's because that's actually something worth fighting for. Um, and and I think that's 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 where that's where we come together. Mm-hmm. Um, and not everyone's going to come. Not everyone's going to agree about that, but a large number of people are, and we're going to be a, a cohesive. Not co- <laughs> it's a different paradigm, right? But it, but it's a group of, of of individuals who believe in this, and that is kind of a nation. And 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 um, if we get big enough. It's a nation that can defend itself against against tyranny. So, and okay, not, not everyone wants to get on board. That's fine, but for the people who do, though, like here it is. <laughs> yeah, those are profound words. You know, um, putting your life on the line, your reputation, your you know everything you hold dear for this idea of Bitcoin. Uh, but you know what's interesting, G, is that I know exactly what you mean. And for myself, deciding to put my name out there, you know, as a starting point, um, talking about it, being active, building on it, I've done so much more 
to build on this nation of Bitcoin than I, I could do or that I would ever want to do for the nation of New Zealand, for example. Um, you know, it's sort of, I really, because sorry. They, they, because like they just locked us out of it. Yeah. What's the point of contributing to that society when they can, when they can cut us out of it at any time? And they just did cut us out of it. So yeah. like, why would anyone, why would, I mean, sure. Some people still want to contribute to that. Um, but I don't. And, and, and I don't, I think, and a lot of people don't. And so I think those societies, I view them really as a, a legacy society. And if we don't have an alternative to that, we're really fucked. So like, that's why, that's why like it's worth dying for Bitcoin. I wonder if this this kind of energy, this tone of conversation is in a way, the analogy is problematic, so I need to work through it with you, but analogous to something like empire where uh, for better or for worse, you know, again, just objectively, for better or for worse, the ability of say something like the British empire to cohesively organize and self-organize and to build Hong Kong, to build New Zealand, to build Australia, you know, these different places from effectively nothing because Hong Kong was a couple of islands, New Zealand was a sparsely populated uh, islands, you know, chain of islands in the South Pacific, you know, there were people there already and there were challenges there that obviously, um, you know, we, we need to um, identify and, and, and it is part, it is problematic, but purely objectively, you know, something was yeah. built there, railways, roads, um, structures were built and maybe the the challenges with a, a purely sort of um, individualist approach is that there needed to be this kind of uh, critical mass of force and pure power to be able to activate that kind of change and in a way maybe bitcoin is that and the nation state and it's just political shenanigans is this kind of legacy system that you talk about and you know, there's kind of this like colonization of these spaces as Bitcoiners infiltrate. You know, they're not, you can't attack them. You know, there's no, there's no fortress to, to penetrate. There's no, um, there's no head to chop off. It is within. It's, uh, it's, it's like a, just a completely different paradigm for power dynamics, geopolitics, economics. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's exciting because it's happening right now. And, really at a high level that's what i'm really interested in with with this show and these kind of, kinds of conversations is trying to find out what what that looks like and sort of where it's moving um because it's like we're building it as we go and i mean you're you're building on it i'm building on it we're um we you know the, the the national anthems and the railways of 19th century new zealand are being built again now but they are bips they are nips, they are layer twos, uh, they are Bitcoin meetups and events, you know, like there's there's some there's something we can do there. There's something we can be active in in a way that we haven't had agency for for a long time. Yes. And and no one can kick us out of it. Which is the key the key thing if you're gonna invest your time in something is to make sure that you're investing in something that no one can take away and no one can kick you out of. Um I think like, so the way Hong Kong was built was that the British just didn't actually do anything um, other than provide a base level of security 
um, the cap capitalism took care of the rest. What what the the reason it was so successful is because there was basically no government, um, other than other than that, that base level of security. Because um, if because obviously like if you're you're not going to build something if something um, can just come and take it off you. Um, so you need that. Um, but I think society kind of figures that out anyway, because it's like you can't, you don't get very far if if you don't figure that out, or at least the societies that that don't figure that out don't live very long, and they get replaced by the ones who do figure that out. This sort of Darwinian way to look at it, I guess. Um, like I'm talking about the base level of security, where like I can build a building, and no one's going to come and just take it from me. Um, yeah. Uh, because there's that social layer of like that building belongs to me because I built it. Um, there's an interesting parallel perhaps with New Zealand as well, you know, with, with the change in government, there's renewed conversation around the Treaty of Waitangi and these things. And hmm. I was having a conversation with uh, a historian who sort of explained, I mean, there was a lot of nuance to it. I think it, it doesn't come through in the media today, but there was a period in the 1830s when uh, New Zealand was very lawless. You you saw these sort of different tribes. You, you, there was dirty dealings. There were Australian prospectors coming in, and and just this kind of flow of people. And it, and it was very loose. And effectively, uh, part of the treaty was bringing in some degree of uh, law and order um, to create a system that wouldn't just um, destroy itself. Because there were, um, you know, a lot of dirty dealings. Just it, it was the wild west or the wild south, I guess you could say. And th this idea, and it kind of comes back to an anarcho-capitalist kind of idea that you know the, the state should only be responsible for defence uh, and 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 protection of those property rights. Um, and so maybe that's sort of what we're looking at here is that, in a way, Bitcoin does that. You know, if you've got private keys, you've secured those personally, you've you've done that. But the Bitcoin protocol and the system itself will protect you if, if you've done your bit yeah. um, and no further work is required. Um, and then it can be delegated to the next layer of functionality, which is the capitalists to come in and accumulate capital and to build things. Um, uh, and then different agents within that are able to act. But the cap capitalism itself isn't able to self for, uh, self perpetuate without some sort of mechanism for those property rights to exist and to be protected. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So the thing um, that I would say to that is that um, it's not guaranteed yet. I mean, there are attack vectors that can be taken against Bitcoin. So, so it basically goes through four phases. The first phase is the honeymoon period where uh, the existing system doesn't care about it because like they don't really they're not clued into it. Um, they don't see what it can do. They don't feel threatened by it. Um, then you you come into the criminalization phase, which is where the state um, sees it as, as as a threat at some level, um, and they they want to get it under control. And so they criminalize its use, um, as, a, apart from like in uh, like apart from in situations that they control. So, uh, so that that's that's basically like that would probably look like your wallet has to be KYC'd, uh, it has to be custodied. Um, you can't send coins to an address that hasn't been KYC'd by 
some institution um merchants can't accept bitcoin that hasn't been kyc'd stuff like that or maybe just merchants can't accept bitcoin with, uh, and you go to jail for violating these laws so they'll make laws uh like this and that's the criminalization phase that will either fail or it's or it or succeed right from the state's point of view if it fails then the next phase um then it starts really hitting the the cantillon pyramid um and so then that's when the cantillon pyramid reacts um and the only way they can react uh is by mining empty blocks to make it useless um and so that's where we come to a hash war um which is like the the fiat the fiat system or the cantillon pyramid they dedicate as much energy as they can to mining empty blocks um and the free market raises fees uh, they pay higher and higher fees to deploy enough hash power like to incentivize enough hash power to come on online to mine blocks that aren't empty and put transactions in them so then either the free market will win or or the, the canceling pyramid will win um so one side will surrender by 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 ceasing to to dedicate any more energy to mining um so that that's the ultimate sort of the way it goes um it doesn't have necessarily have to go through all these phases but if if both sides don't give up that's these are the phases it needs to go through i guess it's a battle of wills in a way um and incentives. economics yeah yeah incentives um because wills it's, can better be than, it's better than fighting it out um it's better yeah. than fighting out with with guns and bombs <laughs> I, I wonder if uh, i mean this is certainly territory that's been explored before but I, I wonder if looking at say the emergence of not so much technology but ideas um and bitcoin's this funny place where it's kind of both but something like christianity and this kind of development of of the divine soul within um yeah. and this kind of system of thought which provides in a, in a way it, it asks that you believe and then it gives you um you know ultimate um uh, peace and and belonging um if, if you choose to do that and and that the way that played out historically in the face of arguably a similar aggressor with the romans and, and these different um you know groups i wonder how that can be used as a, a rediscovery or an analogy to kind of look at Bitcoin because you saw periods of the the early you know the apostles you saw the the period of evangelism um, you know and and I mean just even here in Japan um, stories of um, you know people uh, who were Christian because it was banned for a long time you know being, you know been asked to basically you know. Uh, give up their faith or or risk death. It was you know quite common throughout the world, and you know they gladly gave their life for uh, for the idea um, of Christ. And I think there's there's something in that which maybe warrants more of a historical analysis. Which I'm you know I I, I don't have all the information to it, but you know how how did that work? Because it's it still one you know, and the individuals continued it and they carried that fire within them um and the empire crumbled the idea decentralized and technology helped actually with it you saw the printing press and different kind of mediums of transmission of the word you know so it's like yeah 
there's, there's something in there which would be worth it because that is that is the end of that is this sort of at least for for the in a western context christianity is sort of the original um the, the place where individual sovereignty begins yeah because that's you now have a you now have a soul yeah that can be the, the, the divine divine spark sort of it's a everyone has some value um wow yeah. and that's that's why that's why the individual needs to be sovereign so that that value can can uh, manifest and and influence other nodes human nodes in the network so that the network can reach its full potential um yeah. and that's why that's why individual sovereignty i think is is important um and i think that's what the christians that's what was so powerful and that's why that's why it didn't die yeah. and how it was able to stand up to to these attacks yeah so um yeah well that, that's that's sort of yeah yeah no just along those lines though i mean also you look at the early days you know and, and the rabble you know really it was quite disorganized and there were revisions there were changes there were um internal discussions about what this thing is and, and it kind of feels like we're in that point now you know like the books yeah. You know the, the, the you know the, the new testament hasn't been finalized yet you know we're still writing it some you know 14 years later um yeah. and there's certainly some analogies there you know the gossiping around the protocol you know the way nodes communicate the way the the word can be carried door to door um a rejection of kings and emperors you know there's only thy lord you know there's sort of uh, and and maybe it in a way very is very very it's very aligned and and um the day when martin luther you know nailed the thing to the door october 31st right? yeah yeah exactly right so that's uh, I, I, yeah i like i think satoshi is well aware of this <laughs> yeah yeah that's um that's phenomenal that that's um I, I think there's there's more to be explored there i mean i i talked to rigel walsh uh, another new zealander who's he gave a speech around Bitcoin as as uh, as religion, as a religious phenomena, um, and the, some of the traits come through. You know, this idea, this this conviction, this idea of putting right into the world, and and doing the right thing. And I wonder if, uh, in a way, that explains both this idea that a lot of Bitcoin has come to Christ uh, as well. Um, it's certainly something I've seen around me. You know, I mean, New Zealand, uh, as, as you know, New Zealand. I think Australia is a little bit more Christian than New Zealand for the most part. But even in the is it little, really? I, I thought it was the other way. Oh, I, I mean, I know a lot of Catholic people in Australia, but I've got a yeah. pretty small sample size. But I don't know any Catholic people in New Zealand. So, um, regardless, though, I mean, you know, you just drive through the countryside and you see these like old churches and stuff, yeah, and, yeah. And, and the Sabbath and all of that stuff. It's not yeah. really a thing um, like it would be in other places. Um, but certainly, ideas around Christianity and and kind of the not not necessarily the denomination and the dogma, but some of the ideas, um, I think, are becoming people are rediscovering them. It's sort of a renaissance of thought. I mean, stay humble, stack sets is you know, yeah. To stay humble is just you know that that's that's the first exactly, bit, yeah. right? You know, yeah. Um, and and so there's sort of different, definitely a lot of connections there, and I wonder how that works within a global context, though, because we're still looking at that from a, a certain mindset where the tradition of 
Japan, the tradition of China or the tradition of India, which have their own historical relationships to the, the divine, to the collective, to the universe. It's sort of, I don't know, man, it, it, how, how do those things interface? Because the way they interfaced through the vehicle of empire wasn't particularly nice for some people, for a lot of people. Um, yeah. And so the centralization of, um, or, you know, the ability of, of you know, the Christian empire or, you know, the, the British empire, for example, to, to put its, um, to, to put its foot down and, and, and lay empire in Asia was powered by this grand narrative of progress. Um, and, and even the United States um, manifest destiny, you know, the push towards California and the West was driven. I think deep down there was, you know, Christ and God was in there somewhere pushing that along. How does that work when it interfaces with the other billions of people in the world who don't see that? I think it's purely economic at that point. Um, I think most pro- probably like these, these ancient cultures, um, India, China, Iran uh, are coming back to the fore now, and but the economics is still is still a, a fundamental truth in itself. Anyway, um, they know that just as well as everybody else. I mean, I mean, it's just a, um, through action at least. Anyway, um, and so I think they're just going to interface with it by um, by as I said just before, like domestically none of none of these countries are going to tolerate it um at least not probably not within our lifetime um but internationally it would be imperative that they use it because that's the only way that and also like they don't trust each other either so like they're trying to right now china's trying to push the their their um essentially like a they're trying to figure this out how how do they how do they trade um without the US dollar and it's not there are there are that is actually bitcoin's competitor right now and something which people really don't take into consideration uh because they think well i think it's basically like the the media in the west um has done this hatchet job and that's Bitcoiners need to be very aware that what the what the global south is doing now, in terms of finance, that that is this is Bitcoin's competitor, and it's and it's and it's a very um, it's too early to say which one's going to win, because we, because those nations are the ones that are producing stuff, like the global south produces everything, and if they all don't use Bitcoin. That's the end of Bitcoin. At least, yeah. at least for it's not the end of Bitcoin permanently, but it's not going to take over in our lifetime. Yeah. If if this, so we need to deliver something that benefits them more than than their own system. See, we're we're looking at it. We look at these other countries and their systems from the viewpoint from out from our own system, and our own system is of fiat is purely exploitative and so we just assume that their one's going to be the same but it's not it's a different paradigm again um um and that could and what what they are doing isn't going to fix the world to the degree that bitcoin potentially can but it goes a long way towards it 
it does a way better job than 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 what we've done uh, with with our fiat currency. So it, it, there's there's something there to unpack, um, uh, and something to be respected about it because I, I see like people people are not like Bitcoiners in general are not taking this seriously, and they really need to because <laughs> like, because this mm -hmm. is the way that Bitcoin doesn't get adopted during our lifetime. It's because um, the global South produces something that's better for everyone in the global South than Bitcoin is. Yeah, well, what you say about this collectivist um, engagement with it, in a way, you know, I think the reality is that self-custody is not going to work for the vast majority of people. The The system to... Or at least not uh, immediately. Like a long term, yes, sure. But you've got to get there. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and and there's sort of this idea that there's some sort of collective that is the interface and then the individuals are within that um, and they're sort of just basically doing what they're currently doing. And then at a higher level, there is an interface and there's this kind of this technocratic uh, level that is, you know, the the node runner for for the for the group and yeah. the, and and the nation, and that leads to the same kind of centralization issues you had with with the gold standard and um, you know the the nation state and trading blocks and and these kinds of things, and I mean, yeah, even looking at the history of the industrial revolution, which is arguably the point at which you know humanity really finally finally found its legs. Um, and was able to break out of that Malthusian kind of um, boom and bust cycle. Yeah. We could have had that a, a much. We could have had that a long time ago. I mean, the Greeks had toy steam engines, and yeah. um, they had like wooden rails, and and they had the building blocks of the technology of of you know Mac, um, steam engines. And, oh, the Romans at least had pistons. They were yeah, very they, close to a steam engine, actually. The Romans. It, yeah, and but the reason why it never emerged, at least as far as I've seen, is that the um, the, the the had slaves. Yeah, and so you know why would you build a steam engine when you had free access to slaves and to um, you know these these you know this this resource. Um, and so it came back perhaps to economics as well that um, it's easier to just get someone to do the work instead of building the machine. And I mean, it's same with New Zealand. I mean, the reason we've got some of the best uh, horticulture and agriculture in the world is because it's so fucking expensive to pay people to come over here and, and pick, you know, apples and kiwi yeah. fruit that we have to have machines do it. Um, but in other places like Italy where they still, they grow kiwi fruit as well. They just, they just get laborers in from over the border to come and do it. Um, and so it comes back to incentives. Um, and perhaps the moment that we are in where, similar to the Industrial Revolution, where you had the Enlightenment, you had the Renaissance, you had all these different kind of motions happening, perhaps now in this geopolitical time, Bitcoin, you know, technically, maybe it could have happened, you know, a, a lot, you know, a lot um, further back in time, you know, um, maybe, you know, it's been 14 years, why didn't it happen, you know, uh, you know, five, 10 years ago properly? Perhaps from now on is really when it starts finding its legs post-COVID yeah. um, as geopolitical relationships start to decay. And we need something that can kind of be a lifeline between nations that would otherwise not be communicating with each other. Yeah. I think it's if it can just be used for international trade to replace the US dollar for international trade, that's uh like that's good enough. That that basically like you there's no there's no sort of coming back from that i mean it's one at that point 
Um, what does what does that look like though? Because I mean, how do you? Because that's quite different to uh, the 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 consensus or the zeitgeist of Bitcoiners, which is to you know the downfall of the nation state. It's like, well, what would the Department of Bitcoin look like? You know, you know, what would the you know head Bitcoiner at the Reserve Bank in New Zealand look like? You know, because that's not a frame of thinking that is very common, or or you know, I've never seen it in the Bitcoin world. But you know, someone's got to build this stuff. You know, I, yeah. Um, um, I mean, <laughs> I think it's more like it, it's going to have it's it it really it would it has to start from the global south because they're producing, or it has to start with with the nations that are producing producing things of value. Um, so not the US. So like for something somewhere like New Zealand, I think it could just be the farmers accept Bitcoin. You know, like that's Ontario. Uh, runs yeah. its milk auctions and takes Bitcoin. Yeah, yeah. Um, not accepted, but that uh, accepting Bitcoin is, is one thing. But like saves in Bitcoin, like they 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 value bit they use Bitcoin to store their economic power. Um, if like Fonterra did that, um, then if you want Fonterra's milk, you got to have Bitcoin to get it. And so like, if China does that. Like if you want stuff that's made in China, you have to pay them in Bitcoin. Like imagine what that would do. Well, I mean, the other option looking at Argentina, which is a huge agricultural producer. I mean, they've got abundant farmland and um, historically, you know, major exporters of agricultural products. I mean, that could be a, a potential reality coming through pretty soon if this um, um, uh, Javier, you know, gets in yeah. as president, or at least, you know, even if he doesn't, uh, the question's being asked because the, the peso is, is so so poor right now that they're trying to, they're using US dollars. And I mean, you get into the challenge though, because, uh, you know, if a currency fails, that the next best thing then is probably the US dollar. Yeah. And so is there this precursor period where it's dollarization followed by Bitcoinization? Um because you know, maybe on a US dollar standard, everything will just work for another, you know, X amount of years. I mean, on a global, like a truly global US standard, yeah, and probably could. Um, yeah, which is kind of sad, but and they keep they keep kicking the can down the line, but you know, they've got the manufacturing base of the world now running, but uh, running US dollars, and so yeah. they can kind of just run as much deficit as they need. Although it's although like there's really a the world really is splitting between global south and global north. And I don't think the global south is going to be accepting US dollars for much longer. Um, and that now is increasingly involving the oil production. So, yeah, I, I, I don't know. Um, I don't know what that really looks like. But the next 10 years are going to be really interesting, that's for sure. Yeah. Um I realize we've just had a, a huge conversation and we haven't talked at all about who you even are um, <laughs> and what do you even do here. But I feel like now I do want to just touch it briefly on uh, just a little bit of an overview of, of your background, but then uh, Nostra Rocket in particular, because I feel like there's a connection here around um, solving humanity's greatest problems um, and Nostra in particular. So, gee, like, um, what, what can you say about yourself? Uh, how would you describe yourself? Uh, I don't know. I try not to usually. <laughs> um, I, I guess I'm, I'm an engineer or, or a hacker solve problems. Um, and it, that, that usually involves, 
um, writing code and or building hardware. Um, I got into Bitcoin. Um, I really saw the value of Bitcoin when I did a, um, a hardware project, um, a software defined radio. Uh, I, I, write, I, I did a crowdfunding campaign and raised money and with PayPal because um, that's the way people wanted to pay. Um, and then PayPal froze my account um, like in the middle of manufacturing and stuff. It's just, it's, it, it was like a really, um, it was a very disruptive thing to do <laughs> because like, I needed to pay the manufacturers um, like you, you, all these things are like manufacturing hardware is like you have a schedule, especially back then. Um, now there's a lot more just in time stuff, but like back then I was like, you have a schedule. This is your time on the, on the, on the SMT machines, like it's slotted in for here and you have to pay by here in order to keep that time. Otherwise it's like a month away. And like I had promised delivery, um, to the crowd basically um by a certain time and so paypal frozen freezing my account like really really fuck things up um so i was like okay well then i can only uh, i need i i can only accept bitcoin from now on then for this kind of thing <clears throat> um so i um moving forward with that particular project um i kept i was i kept pre-selling units but only for Bitcoin. Um, and that got me through that period uh, as it took like a, a while for PayPal to unfreeze the account. And uh, and that's a long story, but like I, I ended up making like a, I ended up making a, um, a website, um, let's kill PayPal. And then, and um, the, um, like this, the director of like PayPal APAC, um, like called me on my private phone number, which I guess I'd registered with paper. He called me personally and was like, can you please, we're going to sort it out. Can you take the site down? Cause the staff aren't coming into work cause they're scared. And um, then I got the money back and, <laughs> but like, I shouldn't have had to, it was very, but it was like incredibly disruptive. So anyway, um, that's when I really, really saw the power of Bitcoin. It's like, okay, they like this, it does actually work. It can't be stopped. Um, and um uh, can't be frozen um so it lets you get on with the job and without needing to think about this stuff um then skip forward like i guess like 10 years and then i saw nostra and i got the same it was sort of like the same feeling that i got around early bitcoin um in terms of the community um it, it was really just like a a gathering of people who who are solving important problems and are intelligent enough to solve them and have an i a, a pristine ideology um and so that was when there were there were sort of um around like something like 20 people who are sort of like active in the in the telegram group the nostra telegram group nostra itself wasn't really that usable um um, but then, but like, I don't know, I, I, 
I don't know whether I was lucky or or what, but like then Nostra, I was like, this is, these are my people. Like I just felt very like these, these, these are the people like who I want to be around. Um, and this thing's going to go somewhere. Um, and I just kept sort of going down the rabbit hole uh, with that. And then I ended up producing a, um, uh, like, was, uh, and then I woke up one day and there's all these new people in the Telegram group. Like suddenly it's just floods and floods of people. And then we had a few of these waves, right? There would be like, there'll be like a wave, they're like probably like three, three waves of people coming in um, before this. But, um, but I woke up one day and there's this like a massive wave of new people coming in. It's like, what? And, and I was like, what happened? And then someone said, Jack happened. And then, um, and then so that was when um jack dorsey like i don't know what he did i haven't i don't even know what happened there but like i think he tweeted about it or something and um yeah all these people came in and it sort of like vindicated it or or reinforced that like okay this really is this really is going somewhere um so i was like i want to talk to the developers like i want to talk to other developers who are building stuff with nuster because it's a new paradigm it's a different way of doing things um, so that's why I started the podcast. That's one of the reasons why I started the podcast. Nostrovia. Yeah. Um, Nostrovia podcast. Yeah. So yeah, I, I wanted to like, I wanted to just have, because it's different when you talk to someone in person and when you, when you're talking on telegram or something and, and it's like, I want to have discussions about like how, how people are thinking about Nostra in, in terms of like, technically speaking, in terms of like, like the paradigm of how to build like, um, and the data structures and because it's a totally different way of, of doing things. And um, yes, I started that and um, and I also did it because I historically am not very good at, at speaking <laughs> or public speaking or anything like that. So I was like, this is probably a good way to learn. Um, yeah. And now I'm building uh, Nost Rocket, um, which is like a sort of, you, you can sort of, view it from the perspective of a DAO, um, but not the way that DAOs have been done before, um, but like a DAO in, in pure terms. Um, so basically, like, if you have a project um, and you want other people to work with you on the project, this is this is a way um, where everyone, the, 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 the sort of, let's say, quote unquote, cap table of the project builds up over time in response to the work that's being done at the granular granularity of of the pull request um and no one owns the project it's just a, it's just all of the people who have contributed to it own it um if it, if someone pays to use whatever this whatever the project builds they're paying the contributors directly and it's like a round robin thing so it's eventually consistent with the cap table um so it's it's sort of like an alternative uh, risk sharing thing, alternative to the company structure, um, because companies are anchored in the state, and the state is not going to let us do a lot of things, um, and like we can't do we can't do Bitcoin stuff with companies. There's no such thing as a Bitcoin company because companies are a branch of the state. So it might be fine during the honeymoon period, which we're in still um arguably um but it's not going to be fine during the criminalization phase which is what happens next how does that work and um, so it's almost like a proof of sweat 
kind of model yeah. where um <laughs> you know you, you do some work um you, you you put in some effort um and and is that how how does that relate to your involvement in a project how does that get compensated so so you start with the person who starts the project and they um just by by instantiating the project um that creates like one um one one merit which is sort of like another way to say share and that gives them voting power to approve or reject other people's requests for merits and your request merits in response to work that's been done that you've done um so so if you spend um an hour on 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 solving a problem um then you you send a, a merit request for like forty dollars or whatever whatever you you think that is whatever you is whatever you think it's worth um which is basically like what's what's what would be sustainable for you to keep doing this um and the existing merit holders can approve or reject that um if it's approved then you're a merit holder and you're a part of the voting for all the all the future ones um um so if people if if you don't do the right thing if either if either side doesn't do the right thing so if if the merit holders don't approve merit requests for a for like a, le a legitimate merit request which is reasonable then that person is not going to keep submitting they're not going to keep working for that project um they're not going to keep contributing to that project and other people are going to see that as well and they're not going to contribute to it so um it's dead and and on the other side if if you submit a, a merit request which is obviously like too uh like un unreasonable oh it's not going to get approved or it might get approved once but then you might be told like don't like if you want to keep doing this you're going to have to be reasonable and given a chance to self-correct um so it's sort of like a i wouldn't say game theory but it's just like if you're if it's a group if if the people involved are honest then everything works out well and dishonest if the majority of people are honest then everything works out well because uh, it can sort of uh reject dishonesty and if if like the majority are dishonest then this is not going to work at all um so it's it's kind of like a, a filter i guess um yeah to filter out dishonesty and um so the merits themselves are it's it's literally just like a way to build up a like what proportion of work has has everyone done so that if the thing does make does generate revenue somehow it goes in proportion to everybody who's contributed to it that's the reason for it would that also apply because in a lot of cases open source projects um you know that they, they, they stay free and open and they don't necessarily have a revenue model but for example um donations and sort of yeah. community support would that also filter in through this yeah. and so yeah you, know, you could almost program programmatically do it as well so that anytime donations hit that lightning address that gets pushed out to all of the people in proportion to their merit ratio is that sort of how you imagine it it's working? it's not um like that because we didn't have uh um and that may be possible with with splits but to prove the concept i'm not going to build that um yeah. what i've done is just use a round robin thing so the next every payment that comes in just goes to the next merit holder and it's eventually consistent like it's weighted by that number of merits that they have so it's eventually consistent um because that's because it has to be totally non-custodial yeah. um like it can't it can't it can't have 
there can't be any trusted address in this anyway. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I wonder whether just looping this back to our first half of the conversation, <laughs> though, where we were talking about the Empire Project um, and how arguably things like the New Zealand Company or the East India Company, um, which were pretty innovative you know, ideas that you could somehow have this ownership of this thing that was bigger than a small group of people, but it could actually be quite, yeah. quite large. I wonder whether some of the stuff you're working on, and and in a way, I think uh, you know the Dow thing. There, there's sort of, I think, some people out there who maybe are ambivalent towards it, given some of the stuff that's happened in the Ethereum world and and some of the the shit that's shows. Why I, that... I really don't like calling it a Dow. It's not a Dow. I mean, it's not yeah. a Dow in the way that we understand Dow, that that's commonly understood a Dow. But if you, but in, just in pure terms, yeah. But I've called it like self-organizing an organization. Yeah. Yeah, um, I mean, I I fully understand, and I mean, even words like Web three, I think we can reclaim them. You know, we don't have to be scared of the word. You know, it's yeah. just um, the analogy here of say the, the the New Zealand company, the East India Company. It seems like, in a way, that's what empowered this empire building project yeah. because you could, you know, you could have this group of people make stuff happen on the other side of the world just with letters and 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 pieces of paper and yeah. and. You, you didn't have to have a mechanical link between London and uh, Northland and, or, you know, London and New Zealand to actually build the empire. And in a way, in this new world of Bitcoiners, um, this new sort of sovereign state, the, the digital state, I guess, um, where, where, yeah, how does work happen? You know, we can't send money to each other using PayPal necessarily. We don't want to. We can't operate on that paradigm where we're anonymous or whatever we can still make physical work happen you know this yep. uh, code can get written so it's it's basically um at the core like this system uh is designed to uh focus sovereign human action towards um solving problems and so the way the way that uh, i don't I don't want to get too far into it because we'll be here all day, but like, <laughs> um, it's really, yeah, it, it, it's, it's focusing that, that work, that action, um, in, in a way where you can remain sovereign, um, uh, while working towards a shared goal, which you didn't even, you don't actually even need to know or care what the, um, what you're building, um, because the system sort of hill climbs towards that anyway. Uh, because there's because if if it's a decent de if you think about decentralization, it's the opposite of central planning. So you don't know what you're building. You can't know what you're building because there's no one telling you what to build. There's no one making those decisions. So you need to evolve into something. Like it has to start for for any other direction, right? Um, which is something that engineers and developers have trouble they have trouble understanding that things can evolve. Um even though evolution is a thing. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, uh, along those lines, though, my experience with developers has been that they're generally more task-focused. Um, there is architecture yep. involved, but grand narratives, um, product managers kind of don't really align with what an engineer is particularly interested in, which is, look, this thing needs to do that. Yeah, function. exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so yeah. if you could just pick up an issue and go. Yeah. Um, so the way that that works with Nostrum is this, there's a problem tracker. And the top, I don't know if you've looked at it, but um, 
the, the, the top problem is that humanity is not doing as well as, as we could be doing. And all the other problems are nested under that. And it gets all the way, you draw all the way down to like this button doesn't work. Um, and so that's how you keep that focus towards being, doing something um, like in the right direction and excluding things that are in the wrong direction um, because that's how systems go astray. Um, and this is why it's important that it rejects dishonesty um, at a fundamental level as well. Um, yeah, so, and this is why also like it wouldn't be possible without, oh, it would be very, very difficult to do this without Nostra. Um, and it'll be flat out impossible to do this without Bitcoin um, because you need a source of truth yeah. for, for this to work. Yeah, manifest destiny for the Bitcoin era, an idea that's greater than the sum of its parts. It's a direction towards uh, human achievement, human excellence, flourishing, abundance, a place that we seem to be getting further and further away from in this kind of fiat circus that we live in. Yeah. Um, I'm excited, man. I realize we've gone in a few different places today. I, I've really enjoyed this. Um, I feel like there's more, but maybe for another time. Um, is there anything else you want to add about what you're working on? Anything else you want to, anywhere you want to send people? No, I just, I, I mean, I wouldn't even send people to my project. I would send them just to Nostra itself first. Um, have a look at that um, if you haven't already, <laughs> because it's uh, it's awesome. Um, it's the way that we are able to uh, communicate. Um, like Bitcoin allows us to communicate value, and Nostra is allowing us to communicate our social graph, our social connections. Um, Nostra is the the telegraph lines streaming across the country. Yeah. Bitcoin is the railways carrying value back and forth in this digital world, this new digital Bitcoin state that we are trying to build. We're trying to secede from the fiat system and create something better for everyone. I don't know, there's there's some there's some big stuff in there, man. Um I'm excited. I'm going to have to ponder on this one a little bit, I think. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Gee, thank you so much. Dialing yeah. in from, from Hong Kong. I hope I can come see you. Um, I do want to go visit Hong Kong and have some uh, dim sim and uh, visit uh, Yamate again. But um, thank you for your time, man. Yeah, thanks, man. It was a great, great conversation. Mm -hmm. I had fun. Thank you for listening. I do hope you enjoyed the show. I am Cody Allingham and that was the transformation of value. If you'd like to get in touch with me, please send an email to hello at the transformation of value.com and I will get back to you.